I think this is our third installment of perichoresis. And here's what I want you to do tonight and why I want us to have some conversations. I want you to imagine the implications. There's also room, Olaf, for some of the questions carried over from last week. So don't hesitate to come up. Uh, same would go for, for all of us. Oh, there we go. All right, so here's the basic, the, the first stage in the review. I'm going to fly through this. God doesn't exist apart from the dynamic love relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. Last week, I, I had to ask you that, and I want to ask you again. How many, to one degree or another, believe that that's true? That there's not an independent God out there that isn't part of the triune God that we know? Okay? Okay, cool. Uh, all that he does, especially in redemption, flows directly out of this relationship and its dynamics of love. And uh, that doesn't mean we have to cancel things. It doesn't mean we have to ignore things. It doesn't mean we have to block out parts of the Scripture. It just means that if the nature of God from eternity past, prior to creation, is the dynamic of the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, then that means that all that goes on from God comes out of there. And that isn't how most of us have learned about God. It isn't if you go and buy a one-volume, uh, or go borrow, a one-volume theology book, almost for sure the first quarter of that book or more is going to be a discussion called Theology Proper about God. And it will not include Trinity. It eventually will later on. But first, all the applications about the, the essence of God, the attributes of God, the nature of God, the the decisions of God are all built around philosophic or theological thinking, almost always, of, of God being perceived as an ind independent individual being. And as you know, as we've been talking about it, to ignore the fundamental nature of who God is and always has been creates a lot of weird assumptions and a lot of weird stuff. So uh, coming to know God and not merely know about him is the salvation being given by Father through Jesus and the Spirit. John uh, 17, 3. We're going to wrap it up if we get to the end of it today with that verse. Uh, this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God. And he's speaking to his Father in prayer. They would know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So the goal of the gospel, and the reason we're digging into language, isn't going to heaven. It isn't escaping hell. It isn't overcoming the big mess that Adam and Eve made. That's, that's not the primary thing. All that stuff has its place in our language and in our thought. The primary end of everything from the heart of God is to know the Father, know the Son, and the Spirit. To know Him, not know about Him. So, and then lastly, the heart behind and the motive for and the reach of the gospel is the love from the Trinity toward us all. And I just use these two verses as kind of a reminder. First uh, Timothy chapter 2 uh, is talking about how uh, people should pray and all this kind of stuff. And this is pleasing to God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So regardless of what we know or how we can envision that or what we think about that, we know what's in his heart. And it makes perfect sense because it's the heart of a father. It's the heart of a family. It's the heart that knows what it's like to have the dynamic of love and communication between father, son, and spirit. And that's what the gospel is sharing. That's what it means to know God is to engage in that and to receive that. Uh, Second Peter is the, is the, negative side of that, that God is not slow as men count slowness, but he's uh, patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it's the purpose of God from before time. And then if it's the purpose of God from before time to 
share that Trinitarian life and to invite us into it, that we can count on that and we should count on it. Uh, just like we shouldn't go up to the top and envision a God independent of Father, Son, and Spirit that's actually the one calling the shots in the back. We should trust that he's going to be operating out of love and have that purpose for shared life. Okay? Uh, just because we're going to be talking about perichoresis one more time, it's a term relating to the doctrine of the Trinity, often also referred to by the Latin term circumincessio, meaning mutual indwelling of persons. And this is the important part. Mutual indwelling of persons without loss of individual identity, as in Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, That's the basic definition we're working on. That's the one, and I'm not going to go through all the church history again, but that's the one that took a few hundred years to get out. Uh, Trinity speaks of the three in oneness of God. And a lot of times people will say, well, I believe in the Trinity, but they don't believe in the dynamics of the Trinity. They believe in some sort of three-in-one structure. And this is what perichoresis adds. It adds, so with, with the three-in-oneness, the distinction and the oneness, what's going on in there? What's going on in the mind of God? Because the mind of God consists of the union of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Or you could put it another way, the mind of the Father, the mind of the Son, and the mind of the Spirit are one. So the dynamic, what's going on? What, what advantage are they taking in the distinction and in the oneness? That's what perichoresis seeks to answer. So perichoresis speaks about the structure of that relationship. Okay? Uh, the etymology is simple and fast. I just wanted to review this. Perichoreo is the verb from which perichoresis emerged as the noun. Perichoresis is a noun. Perichoreo is the verb. Peri means to circle around, and choreo includes three thoughts. One is to encircle, to open a space, to bring one thing into another. So in other words, this is the circle, okay, that Perry talks about. And then what you do with this space and the purpose behind this space, the function of this space is what the Correo talks about. So the function of the circle that God gets is to bring us into him. It is also to contain or keep us in him. So the first one is easy to think about concerning redemption, you know, uh, because we're lost, we're alienated in our mind, we're wandering. I don't go so far as to say anymore that we're separated. Uh, we're, we're, we're blinded, we're alienated. And so part of this circle is to bring us in. So that's easy to understand if you think about it in terms of redemptive work. The second is easy to understand if you think about it as the intention, the original purpose of creation. So God created a space. Where did he create the space in? Where could he create? What were his options? Jason says himself. That's all that there was. That's all that there was. In this class that I was in, I ran across a couple people's efforts to illustrate it, and I'm going to bring those to you when I have a chance. But one of the ones that I thought was just the most beautiful trying to, to illustrate this encompassing was, you guys know what a color wheel is like? Where it's like a, a disc that's a rainbow and it circles around. So this gal put this color wheel idea together. And then, you know, when all the colors are shining in a, in a light type of way, then you have white light, right? So there was room in the middle of this color wheel for the whiteness of that light. And then she was proposing that as a way to talk about the space that the perichoretic relationship allowed God to create, to create creation into, to create time into, to create history into. So anyway, the second one gives us some basis for understanding 
what was both the purpose and the application of creation. And it's not as weird and random and independent as you think. It doesn't have to be. And then the last one is the metaphorical sense, Correo, of to comprehend or grasp a thing, to understand or sense it properly. So that'll play into what we're trying to do. Okie dokie. And then uh, this is the only scripture I want to just stay out, but the reason perichoresis became a word of necessity, the reason that there was hundreds of years spent by the church fathers and the various councils and the bishops and all this kind of stuff and just average folks talking about this was because of verses like this one. I and the Father are one. And so, you know, perichoresis speaks not just to the oneness, but to the nature of the oneness. And that's where it begins to open up stuff in our hearts. Okay? All right, so this is my statement. I'll take responsibility for it, and I'll answer questions about it or anything along those lines. But I just think we simply cannot speak about the gospel meaningfully without going back, and when I say back, I mean to the origins, back to the unique distinction and oneness that is at the very core of who our God is. To talk about the gospel as if it was some kind of an outgrowth or a reaction by a solitary offended God is going to, you're never going to be able to get to the right end story starting at the wrong beginning. And it's, it's, you know, we have to settle the issue of, do we believe that God is kind of a monolithic, independent being back there that at some point in his history, which I don't know how you would talk about it that way, but at some point in his history, he began to manifest as a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then maybe he will stay that way and maybe he won't. If you don't have that issue settled in your mind, that that's not the way to talk about it, then you're going to be subject to all kinds of things. Uh, but I just don't, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that for most of us in this room, we do believe that this is the, the fundamental pre-existing nature of who God is, His Father, Son, and Spirit, living in, in harmony, in joy, in communication, and all that kind of stuff. So, the central redemptive work that that God does is going to flow out of that nature. Not the nature of offense and solitary distance. Failure to think this way opens us up to imagine pagan or humanistic ideas and images of God. So Zeus or Gandalf, anybody? Now I've heard people illustrating it that way and thinking about it that way. And I've heard the stories about God virtually parroting the kind of, if you've ever read Greek mythology, the kind of petulance and the kind of authoritarianism and the kind of offense that Zeus and the Olympian gods make. And it's, a, it's an appealing picture to think of God or to think of even God the Father as Gandalf with that long beard. You will not pass! But Perichoresis will give us a better thing to think about than those two images or the myriad of other images there are. Okay, so what I want to do on the, on the recovery of, of teaching too much last week, because I did get some wise counsel about it. I could have stopped at several points. I want to jump back in to perichoresis as it relates to modern theology. And please understand, this is just something that I discovered in Karl Barth. And I'm not saying that Barth's the reason this is valuable. It's just, it could have been several other theologians, but here's, here's what Barth said. And it helps break it down into what I want us to consider and talk about tonight. 
So Bart regarded perichoresis as the one important form of the dialectic. And remember, dialectic is the, uh, the ability to reason and question and judge various opinions. And I'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, but the one important form of the dialectic required to complete the concept of three-in-oneness from two sides of that three-in-one reality. One from the side of the unity of the divine essence and two from the side of original relations. Okay? The dialectic is the art of investigating or discussing the truth of opinions. And so let me just make one point on that. I am thrilled that we have a group of people who have purposed in our heart and given one another permission to realize that our thoughts about God and theology and Christian life and interpreting the scripture are in fact opinions. And I spent plenty of time in my life in churches that didn't think that. They thought, oh no, we don't have opinions about God. We just believe the Bible. But that is a super naive way to think. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't reveal truth about God at all. matter of fact, I think it does. I think we miss a lot of that truth because we assume that the interpretation of a given place and a given passage or a given story and the conclusions that are drawn second, third, fourth generation from that interpretation are the only way to think about it. And, and we're going to have to be honest about that and say, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. And I went through it, standing in front of my library going, who am I? I don't have the education. I don't have a pedigree. I don't even know if I have the courage to disagree with what's in these printed commentaries and theology books. But the Lord wouldn't let me off the hook. And because he's alive, and because we can relate to him, we're not stuck with just having to choose the best of the 25 different opinions on a given topic. We can really go to the Lord and say, what are you doing? And we can believe. We can commit ourselves that Jesus was telling the truth in John 16 when he said, the Holy Spirit is going to take what the Father has given me and declare it to you. Wow. That's pretty special. I spent a long time as a Pentecostal wanting those gifts that the Holy Spirit was given. And now I, I still want them, but I am even more captivated by him helping me know who Jesus is. Help me know who the Father is and help me know what the truth is. He's the Spirit of truth. So, uh, this idea, this one word, dialectic, which, you know, is hard to use in a sentence nowadays, but it makes a really, really important point that we are wrestling out opinions. And I am telling you, in the name of Jesus, you have as much right to an opinion about a passage of Scripture as the next guy. Or go. Because really, it's only what your opinion is about them, about something, that can govern your life. You can't borrow opinions from other people. You can only say you do, but ultimately you have to believe what you believe. And it's okay. You know? it's, it's one of the tough realities of life. Okay, so these are the three thoughts I pulled from Bart. If we were to if he were to pop in from the cloud of witnesses, he might say, Larry, I didn't mean any of those things, <laughs> but this is the thoughts that I've got. So I want to be, you know, this is my opinion, okay? And, uh, and, and you're welcome to, to have a different opinion. But I would like you to consider 
at least these three areas of, of dialectic, areas of in, intention. So the importance of a more robust and sophisticated word picture conveyed by perichoresis that completes our mental concept of three and oneness in a way that lesser images, analogies, or illustrations cannot. You remember last week, uh, Gregor Nzanzian came against Apollinarius because Apollinarius was saying that uh, the, the Godhead is like the light that hits the earth, the rays that carry it, and the sun that is the origin of it. And it created a hierarchical division in the thought about the Godhead that uh, Gregory the theologian came strongly against. There's lots of goofy opinions. I just used that one, remember? Solid water, liquid water, gas water. But the problem is, the one in control of those things, the one that's the determining factor in that, isn't the water. It's the temperature. So it's a force completely outside the water that makes it appear solid, appear liquid, or appear gaseous. A lot of people think about God that way. They think that Jesus is like a tool who manifests because humanity was in trouble because of sin and death. And that he came, and then he left, and he's kind of back on the shelf again. There's a lot of folks that think in, in those terms. And that, that really the Father's the one that's got to be appeased and all this kind of stuff. So... That's an external thing. What that does is that deifies the authority and power of sin to change the way God is. And I, I just really encourage you to reject any sort of thought like that because to think that way is to take the reality away from God in your heart and let something else be in control. And it doesn't mean we have to totally throw out that something needs to be done with sin, something needs to be done with glory, something needs to be done with heaven, but it does mean be careful putting somebody else. Like one of the, the classic um, statements of that that used to drive me nuts is if you're talking to a, a Calvinist and they're big on, on uh, sovereignty, so you know God is the ultimate authority and he can do whatever he wants, right? That's sovereignty. Inevitably, in your conversations with them will come up a hundred things that God can't do. God has to punish sin. He can't just forgive it. God has to react to this. It has no, no. Why? Who? Who says? Who's standing outside God saying this is where you got to behave or you can't be God? But people don't think that they're doing it because they don't think in terms of external forces determining what they think about God. Okay. Next, his point on the divine, the unity of divine essence. So when that unity of divine essence, the oneness part of three and oneness. When that unity of divine essence is seen through the rich lens of perichoresis, we can conceive of real and eternal distinctions without sacrificing oneness. So the Father can be the Father and not the Son. And the Son can be the Son and not the Father. And, and, and in doing so, that lets the Son eternally gift the Father with fatherhood. It lets the Father by sheer existence in relationship to the distinction of the Son, eternally gift the joys and the privilege of sonship to the Word. That's amazing. And if that's what perichoresis does inside the Godhead, then all of a sudden it doesn't become such an inconceivable mystery that through the purposes of this God, this one God, triune God, that you can be made a son too. Because it's all a gift. And, you know, that's pretty deep waters, I understand. But anyway, so here's what the issue is. 
we don't have to fall into thinking of union as being sameness. That means that Richard and I can hold on to our uniqueness. And we can have breakfast with Dave, and he can bring his uniqueness, and we can literally be one without having to do so by compromising the beauty and the individuality and the uniqueness of our own perspectives. Now, that doesn't mean that everything we think that makes us unique is right, and so some of that's going to be grown out of us at some point, but the end of that growth is never going to be sameness. It's never going to be uh, pantheistic uniformity. There's a lot of people that... that um, overplay that thing where John the Baptist said, uh, I must decrease so he can increase. He's talking about ministry. He's not talking about identity. John the Baptist is still in the cloud of witnesses. And he probably still he has his head back on, I'm guessing. I don't know. That'd be awkward if it, that's how the cloud of witnesses worked. But uh, so John's still John. And he's probably still got those fiery eyes and that personality. Because that's, there's room for that in this perichoretic relationship, okay? Um, Just think about this. Even though it's plainly written in Scripture that our destination is a new heaven and a new earth, that's pretty plainly written in Revelation, right? How many times do you hear people talking about heaven as if it's up in space someplace or up in the atmosphere, it's clouds, and it's sort of nondescript instead of it being here. Uh, who's the Wild at Heart guy? I just lost his name. John Eldridge is one of the first guys, contemporary guys that I heard talking about, hey, no, we're not destined for some cloud village. We're destined for a place where the mountains that we want to ride the kayak down those streams have been restored to their pointy newness their ruggedness, their amazingness. That's because he's got a handle on this and he's avoided that sort of pantheistic reduction of everything to just spirituality. Okay? The third thought from Bart is, is a powerful one that I want us to talk about a little bit tonight. And that is when the Trinity is viewed through perichoresis, the side of original relations and when he's talking about side original relations, this I am pretty sure about, he's talking about the relation and the capacity for relationship that exists because the Father is not the Son, but they're one. The Son is not the Father, but they're one. The Father and Son are not the Spirit, but they're one. So their oneness keeps them together. Their oneness unifies their purpose and their thought, but their distinction allows there to be things like conversation and application and honor and volunteerism and all this kind of stuff. Okay, So the Father himself doesn't have to be the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, but everything that the Lamb slain is and does is fully incorporated in who the Father is. Make sense? And we can see it in areas where, and we get confused about this, we can see it in areas like creation, because everybody I know in church talks about the Creator, and they either think it's the monolithic God or they think it's the Father. Even though the Scripture plainly says in a number of places that it was through the Word that everything was made that has been made. And Hebrews says that, that it's through Him that the worlds were created. Jesus. So, saying Jesus is a Creator does not take away from the role the Father plays. 
where the spirit plays. And we know the spirit hovered over the thing and all this kind of stuff. See what I'm saying? So perichoresis helps us in that. Uh, now, here are some examples of what I want to, what I call relational realities. And this might be a place where Bart goes, yeah, I think you're up the wrong tree, but I don't think so. These relational realities include uh, universal human experiences like love, honor, communication, creativity, family, society, and so on. Does there seem, let me ask you this question, so this will maybe begin to spark our conversation. Does there seem to be, to you, a standard behind these types of experiences in your life? In other words, does it make sense to say that communication if it's good, is like this. Now, we don't necessarily say it's only like this. In other words, you, you know, I don't know anybody that says communication can only include this, this, and this. But doesn't everybody have the ability to go, huh, when I think about communicating, I want these to be the elements of it if it's going to be good. And if those elements aren't present, and it becomes aggressive and dictatorial or manipulative, that's bad. Why do you think we have those thoughts? We have those thoughts because communication itself as a thing and as a process comes from the communication that has pre-eternally existed in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this is very practical. It's not just Ooh, let's have a super complex theological discussion that doesn't make any sense and apply to life. This is like super basic stuff. Uh, love. All of us know what it's like or have, have heard and, and grimaced over it when love is attempted to be applied and defined in the wrong way. Controlling, manipulative, abusive. How do we know? That's not what love is. Because love had an origin, has an origin, even today. You can trace it directly back to this dynamic, this perichoresis between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pretty much. See what I'm saying? So this is, this is practical stuff. It, it touches your life every single day. Every single day. Uh, so this is also my thought. So I didn't pull this from Bart. Uh, but I do think he might agree with it. Perichoresis literally reveals an eternal space, eternal in origin, and eternal forever. So in other words, when we fulfill what Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3, when we know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus whom we sent, does anybody in here have a doubt that that's going to be good? That that knowledge is going to be rich and blessed is anybody afraid, well, I'm pretty sure I've done what's necessary so that I can go to heaven and know God, but I don't know what it's going to be like. I'm afraid that once I know him, I'm not going to like him. Or he's not going to like me. I know a lot of people that think that way. We have, we have uh, some very close friends who, who said not too long ago, and I'm watching that person come out of this particular thought pattern, but... He said, you know, I am so uh, worried about disappointing God that all things being equal, I would just rather go into oblivion than run the risk of having an afterlife and being disappointing to God. That's the fruit of 
not thinking like this. And I'm working gently because I now have more patience than I used to have trying to help somebody beyond that thing. So perichoresis literally reveals an eternal space in the Godhead between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and that's why this concept and that space itself is more valuable and life-giving than most of us imagine. Because that space is where morality comes from. It's where goodness comes from, where communication comes from. And when we think like we've already talked about that a little bit. So I'm asking, aren't these real and not merely abstract concepts? They're not arbitrary. They're not the product of... So we've got uh, five different uh, cultural, culturally evolved uh, sociology studies that now we can base on how all those work out that this is what love is or that this is what communication ought to be like. Now, at one point, all we had were the headhunters in... Uh, in uh, New Hebrides, and this, that, and the other, and a couple of uh, elite uh, Politburo people. So there was a time when we drew, drew our conclusion that this was all about manipulation and eating one another was good. <laughs> but no, see, everybody knows this. This is the basis. Uh, an interesting uh, take on this was from C.S. Lewis when he talked about mere Christianity. He talked about the basic drive that everybody has to witness to morality witness to what is right and you know when you're doing wrong thing now you can be a sociopath and not but each of these things too just to wrap up this last slide each also begs for unity but depends utterly for that unity on individuals no i i just while you've been talking about the whole thing about uh communication love honor all of that, I've just, the beautiful picture that the movie The Shack depicted oh. is an easy way mm -hmm. for my brain to yeah, yeah, think no. about it that's, in that's terms why of that relationship. You bet. That's, that's why that book sold 20 or 30 million uh, copies. And... Heady and theological, but I think that's just a, an easy way mm -hmm. to um, kind of take a step back and see how yeah. That was a great depiction of it was, and the progress love. that Mackenzie made within that environment, mm. where where he was actually being uh, ground on, rubbed on a little bit by this paracretic relationship. Mm -hmm. They were handing him off one to another. You yeah. know, uh, Sarah takes him out in the garden. What a great place to reveal the mess that's in your own heart. Yeah, is this spectacular your place? And you, know? you see the oneness and the individuality. Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely, that's right. that's very that's good. I really do think, and this is something that I'm really counting on, guys. I know we, you know, we're we're a fairly small group, and again, who, who are we and who am I and all this kind of stuff? But this is the beautiful thing about this: we don't have to be super smart and thereby create this reality. This is the reality that comes from God. That is God. This is the reality that has been passed to us in redemption. And this is the reality of the kingdom of God. Therefore, if we just declare something and believe something, a tiny part of this, that's a real part of it, that's the gateway that we can step into the experience of the whole thing. The assurance in our heart. The joy, the love. Okay. Okay. 
discussing about who am I to question stuff, mm -hmm. every time that thought goes into my head, I can look, this book was written by a PhD in theology, and it's like, guess what? Another PhD in theology says the exact opposite point. Yeah. So you get to pick which PhD in theology. Yeah. You're and ultimately, you got to be responsible to say, God, what do you want me to know? Yeah. But the, I, I, one point on that. Yeah. It makes me think in Acts, because I just read, read the last part of Acts, Festus's complaint against Paul. Uh -huh. or, or, or maybe it was uh, Herod's while Festus was there. I think that was it. Herod's playing his Paul up. Uh, your learning has made you mad. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got to give you a little history that I think this finally opened up something really big about how radically different the perichoresis is. I'm going to mention a couple of denominations, and it's never to denigrate. It's just to say that's my context sure, sure. and my history. I grew up in a kind of Baptist fundamental-ish independent churches that the guy was a real teacher that really hammered in the Greek and stuff like that. So we learned the nature of God was immutable, omnipresent. You know, we had a whole list of mm -hmm. the attributes of God. Well, I realize now that as you visit and view God as the set of attributes, and not that any of those are necessarily wrong, mm -hmm. what it does is it puts you in a position of this is God and this is where he is. This is where I am, and this is my attributes. Then when we want to step up a little bit, we say, now I'm in trouble because I'm a sinner and I'm going to go to hell, or I'm, you know, God's angry. Well, okay, I can improve that, and now I'm not going to hell. But I'm still here, and God's still here. Mm -hmm. Well, then maybe I grow and I learn a little more about grace or something, and it's like, well, okay, God actually likes me. Yeah. But I'm still here. But I'm still here, mm -hmm. and God's over there. And then we can become a charismatic and it's like, well, the Holy Spirit's going to go around the corner, come up behind me, and give me a mm -hmm. little zap every now and then, and I'll have the filling of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. But God's still there. I'm still here. The Holy Spirit may visit and hang out a while, but I'm still here and God's still there. And perichoresis finally says, no, we're all here together. Absolutely. And Absolutely. there's a oneness. And yeah, I can still learn all those attributes about God, but I enter into that relationship with that God, I'm not ever distant from him anymore. And not only do you, but so do I, and so does, yeah. just, so, do, so does everybody else around here. That radically changes how we see one another. Right. And our relationship is based on that relationship, not Absolutely. just something we have to yeah. generate. And, and the, the next logical step to that is to come to understand that our image, our likeness, our nature mm -hmm. is based on that relationship as well. So when God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, he wasn't just talking about pulling three or four moral codes right. out and, oh, well, God's spirit, so I have a spirit, and God, you know, no. He's talking about you are, are, were made to be in relationship. Right. And what was the first thing God pronounced not good? I know this because I'm working on a wedding this weekend. <laughs> he said it's not good that man should be alone. Be alone. Yeah. Why? Because God's never been alone. Right. Yeah, and I think you can take that even further and say, if we have, if we can enter into that relationship, all our maladies of self-esteem issues, uh, much of our, many of our mental thing, uh, bad views of ourselves are all based on that distance. And if we could eliminate that distance and recognize our identity in Him, then we no longer have to look down on ourselves with all the issues right. that we have. And go well. I'm here, and God's there, and I have this stuff going on, and mm -hmm. and that that goes away. And how different would culture be? How yeah. different would society be if we didn't have to do that with other people as well? Right. We 
it all based on judgment then at that point. That's so right. We live according to judgment. Then it would begin to make some sense. You'd expect the scripture to say, judge not. Not because it's a prohibition against judging, but because you don't need to. Right. Not in the way we do it. Trying to determine you're in, you're out, you're good, you're bad. We don't need to do that. Now, that's going to take some language work and it's going to take some friends. But yeah, that's great, great stuff, Dan. Great stuff. Uh, okay, so this last bit is, this is one I know that caused some, some uh, struggle, and I understand it. And again, this is not Bart, this is me. Uh, what is the basis of all relational reality? Is it because I am, says the Lord? Or is it because I said, says the Lord? Now, a large part of Western Christianity is way more comfortable saying that Relational reality, first of all, a large part of Western reality doesn't even think that much about relational reality. They just talk about reality. And I used to do that. But reality is relational at its core because of perichoresis, because of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the dynamic relationship they have. But what is the foundational ultimate? Why is things what they is? Not good grammar, but I'm trying to combine... Diversity and unity. Why is things what they is? Is it because of who God is, or is it because of what God said? Which follows. What has God ever said that didn't directly flow out of who he was? That's not a that's not a rebellious thing to the, the sanctity of the word. It's just that. If there's stuff in here that is the word from God, of God, okay, then it does come from who he is, right? And therefore, who he is is the more fundamental foundation of reality than what he says. Now, uh, the first one then is eternal in its origin, meaning it comes before time, before creation. God is who he is before he did anything that we call creation or life or time, right? Okay, the second one is not. It came after that. Virtually all the stuff we read in the Bible, with the exception of the first few verses in Genesis, the first few verses in John, and the first uh, chapter and a half in Ephesians, virtually all of that are instances of God declaring something or saying something very valuable, very important, but it all comes after time, after creation. Okay, The second one is, is not necessarily eternal. The first one is eternally consistent with the ontological. Ontological means original, the origins uh, of being, the, the original being and nature of reality, which is that prayer-creative relation. The second one may or may not be. Now, here's some examples, and I don't want to have to go dig these up. I'll just tell them to you, but if you want me to look at them, i got to mark my Bible. So Abraham and Isaac, remember, God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Okay? Now, God forbid that we stop there and make that an intrinsic part of our faith. You have to get that first kid out of the way, get him old enough to sacrifice him. You can have other kids after that, but this is the way God wants it. It's what he said. See what I'm saying? It was never designed to do that. And you can tell as you jump ahead to uh, 
verse 12, stop. Don't do that. And the whole outcome of this thing and the necessity for God to say, go sacrifice your son, was because he was working in the limitations and humbling himself before the communication, before the theological concepts that Abraham was carrying of his day. And he wanted to reveal himself as the God who provides. So he said something for a specific purpose that was limited in time and that we we can see it play out. Does anybody here believe that God wanted Abraham to kill Isaac? No. But he could say, do it for the purpose. You see how the difference is? One is ontological. One is applied in a, in a specific and narrow way. Um, oh, let me bump through those others real quick. Uh, Isaiah is the one where he says, I'm tired of your sacrifices. God's the one that ordained those sacrifices. But he said, I don't want the blood of bulls and goats and all this kind of stuff anymore. Okay, That's Isaiah. Uh, the clean and the unclean is Peter. Peter's Poor Peter. He's up on the roof. And Cornelius is having this encounter with God. He's sending people over. Here comes this vision down, the sheet lower down with all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. And God says, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, I've never done that. But that was a whole thing that God was saying to help Peter understand that you're not supposed to call people unclean that I call clean. Okay? It's not, it was never designed to be the, the foundation, the ground of theology or religious practice. Uh, the same one, Jesus got in a bit of trouble in Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, when he was going, but I say unto you. So you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say unto you that if a man looks at a woman to lust after, he's committed adultery already. You've heard it said, love your your, uh, friends and hate your enemies, but I say unto you, do good to those that despitefully use you. The but I say unto you is not Jesus violating the foundation of reality because the foundation of reality, because Jesus was absolutely speaking from and reflecting who his father is not what had been said back to Moses. Okay? So here's uh, 17. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So perichoresis, even in this most basic, and I wish this were preached on much more than it is, but it doesn't say anything about heaven, it doesn't say anything about hell, and it doesn't say anything about purgatory. So it, it has a hard place finding a landing place in the preaching of the church. But this statement, a direct statement about what the goal of redemption is, because you would agree that everything that we call salvation is ultimately going to manifest in knowing the Father and knowing the Son, right? Having eternal life. This reveals the interpenetration, the, the weaving together of who God is. Okay? Perichoresis defines the nature of that eternal life. (sighs) We don't really need to go through this. How do we know morality is good or bad? We know through perichoresis that morality or virtue or holiness or goodness or anything comes eternally from the reality of who the Father and Son are. And so when when we engage in morality in a true sense, we are literally engaging in who God is, and it's linked to eternal life. Okay? Let's get out of that. Uh, Here's the definition again. Mutual indwelling of persons without the loss of individual identity. Yes. 
I didn't leave us a lot of time, but there's some. There's the mic. Yes, Vicki. Oh, okay. Okay. So oftentimes the morality question comes up um, in various um, conversations with people. And if you point out that somebody can be morally good, you know, they're faithful to their wife, they love their children, they provide for them, they're good at work, they treat their employees good, blah, 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 blah. And they will say to me that that doesn't count. None of that counts. Toward what? Towards salvation. Right. So when we're sharing the gospel with a person... Because, Dan, it doesn't do anything to bridge this gap. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. And so um, I, I think when we're going to share with, with people and they say things like that, um, I try to just basically say, hey, look, you know, we... If a person is good, where does that come from? You know, at the core, where is that coming from? Because what they're saying and saying that is that the good comes just independently from them, yeah. but it doesn't count for anything. It, yeah. Because nobody's right. willing to say that uh, a father who serves his family and, and sacrifices himself to provide for them mm -hmm. isn't better than somebody who pimps his little three-year-old daughter out for sex. Nobody's willing to say that. Right. But they're saying there's fundamentally in relationship to eternity and God, no difference between those two things. Yeah. And that is the error that, that you get to think when you don't take perichoresis into account and the, and the origins that it is for all these things. Yeah. So I, I do think the morality question is, it, it can be a thing to not rush through, mm -hmm. um, only because I just, I just see people using that to say no, um, really, what I feel like they're saying is no to God. Mm -hmm. You know, that that goodness doesn't come come from him. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah. okay. So when I was in Bible college, I mentioned this before, but this is one of these consequences. When I was in Bible college, we were literally taught that if you take a pagan culture and pagan individuals, things that we would normally attribute to being good, like a mother loving her children, or a father caring for his family, aren't. They're selfish. When all kinds of things we had to go through to try to keep that from being something that we attributed to this moral list of goodness. But the truth of the matter is, here's what the fruit of that is. The fruit of that is really screwed up thinking, thinking, okay, so if this, if this Buddhist mom who is loving her children and taking good care of them, if, if that thing she's doing isn't doesn't count, how do I know that my love for my children counts? And most, a lot of times, I don't say most, yeah, too many, let's put it that way, too many believers in our culture don't give the value to those things that they deserve and they don't link them back to the nature of God being expressed through their life. And so you have moms, that uh, young moms that got two or three kids and they go, I just can't, I don't have time to do anything for God. Well, how about wiping the dirty butt of your baby? You don't think God finds value in that? If you didn't do it, look what would happen. Little kid would get sick and blisters all over him. Uh, 
you'd end up going to jail for neglect. He'd go into foster care and the whole society would fall apart if everybody behaved that way. You don't think God has a part in that? It's really weird and it's really arrogant and confused. Go ahead, Richard. Uh, you listen to talk radio like I do a lot when I'm traveling. You hear a lot of these, uh, a lot of um, the talk show hosts that I listen to are believers, but they'll say, I'm just a sinner or I'm like filthy rags. And that is, and that comes across in a lot of um, the people that we're around, which can open up a conversation for that, that wrong thinking in, in the way we've been. Uh, being taught. Absolutely. Uh, so when we, when we think about why, why are we, uh, stay there, why are we uh, even worried about trying to change our language? Well, maybe it could open up a conversation when somebody says that or somebody that that's not knowing the Lord, uh, you know, hears that. Could we go, would it be possible for me to challenge the assumption of that with you? What if you're not a sinner? In, in that sense, you know, what if you really are a person who God has made provision for that sin already, even though you don't know it? You know, that, that's somehow we got to get and there. And most conversations that can be started is just by listening to who you're talking to, because they will say something mm-hmm. that is just a lie, mm-hmm. and you can bring, you can yeah. start. Or this. they'll say something that's a hope that they believe it'll squeak out, and they don't. They don't have any grounds for it, so you can tell it's just like, oh, I wish it were true. You know, I wish God were good. I wish He was my Father. I wish He thought of me as a child. Great. Oh, hey, Ronnie. Hey, I was thinking uh, the other day about God stuff, <laughs> and and um, yeah, and what came up was the idea that when we're preaching the gospel, we could really throw out a different way of saying it and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to introduce you to eternal life. Because eternal life is to know the Father. So instead of saying, I'm trying to help you know the Father, we can just throw in, you know what? That's eternal life. And that could be a shocker for people that would make them say, what? Huh? What do you mean? There's a lot in here. Uh, you know, how about, I, 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 want to, I want to help you recognize that you've been included in the life that exists in God or something along those lines. I mean, it can be a little weird sounding or whatever, but you're right. It could be a door opener for sure. Absolutely. Becky. So here's a really vulnerable one, um, but so pertinent. So I've been, I was, Raised in a Christian home, strong believers. My parents are strong believers. Mm-hmm. My dad just passed away about a month ago. And um, a couple of weeks ago, my mom said to my brothers and I, <clears throat> Dad always loved to find a peaceful place to go. Do you suppose there's a peaceful place for him right now that he's sitting in? And my heart just kind of dropped because I realized She's missing this relational peace. The peaceful place is in, he's in for reals perichoresis Mm -hmm. right now with the Trinity. He's not going to need a peaceful place to go. He's there. But that's how invasive the other thoughts have been 
in our theology yeah. and in our way of thinking that they, there would need to be a river there so dad could go to a peaceful place to sit. Right. Right. That he, that he's alone somehow up there. Yeah, yeah. And that he needs. Okay, and then, and then yeah. there's there's other extensions like that. Like, boy, if I could just find, or if he could just find, or she could just find, because we assume that we just don't have an idea what it means to be in Christ. I mean, that's all it is. It's it's all the meaning of that has been stripped away or denied us because we don't think of this as origins. Yeah, that's sweet. And I was so glad that she asked the question yeah. and didn't just let that rattle around in her brain so that we can have conversation. Praise that's God. exactly what we're talking about, right? Yeah. How do we bring this into conversation in ourselves? And, and you know that subtitle on the slide, about three slides back, perichoresis and living in assurance. That, that's it. I mean, yeah. The destination, new heaven, new earth, heaven with clouds and harps, that's not the issue. That is a vastly inferior thing. Allie, I just saw you on TV a little bit ago. (laughs) That is a vastly inferior thing to where we really are going, sort of, which is kind of a weird word. We are in Christ. That's why Jesus said, this is the promise, right? Before he went to the cross. That day you will know. What? Know what? Know that you're going to go to the right place. No. Know that I'm in my Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. Okay, go ahead. Just a second, Janet. Um, Monique? So um, when I taught at a, a Christian school in Australia, the um, staff always got together, and we really focused on the fact that we were image bearers. Mm-hmm. And so the fun part is looking at every little individual and deciding what facet of God they have inherited. So yeah. like your little mathematic kids find real kick in the fact that the temple has all the exact, you know, measurements of like geometry and the the mm-hmm. labor's exactly pi. And then you've got, you know, <clears throat> the ones that are really excited about um, Mary Margaret and, and pouring out the perfume and the fact that that perfume was smelled and encouraging God on the cross and just all the differences. Yeah. And so... Along those lines, somebody was talking about they were witnessing and that they were talking about doing that with everybody. And so this guy was like, yeah, well, I don't like this, and that just made me want to beat him in the face. How do you, And he's like, you know, I bet God wanted to beat him in the face too because that was, you know, and that's, that's what you can, that was what you've inherited from Daddy God. And he was like, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, God does not like that, so, yeah. you know. So it's interesting, just this concept that every person bears God's image. And you can deny, like you can deny you have this certain earthly father. You can deny your heavenly father all you want, but you still Mm -hmm. got that nose. Now, see, here's the deal. This is really, really a good point. I think this is really a practical point in this. How can the kid that's the chairman of the chess club be bearing the image of God the same way as the middle linebacker is on the football team? Right? Perichoresis is how. In other words, individual distinction in union. Doesn't mean sameness. It means oneness. Yeah, that's really good. Janet? Yeah. Um, Hi. Hi. This is over. <laughs> um, I was thinking of the doctrine of total depravity and how that kind of plays into our morality issue. 
and it's affected a lot of us in our culture. You know, we think we're totally depraved and we uh, are not good, you know, and I, I hate that. But can you comment on how we are good and how Jesus sees good people, you know, and the picture in perichoresis and um, being acceptable to God? Um, yeah. I'm going to be fair to the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean that there's nothing, there's nothing at all that anybody can do that's good until they get born again or whatever the case is. It means, and a Calvinist would defend it by saying there's nothing that can affect their salvation, nothing can affect their righteousness, all this kind of stuff. But it's a, it's a weird argument, and it's not hard to go back and find goodness. God made man, and he declared that the creation was good, that the birds and the fish and the animals were good, that the plants were good, but that man was very good. So the question is, where, what is the ground of reality? Is it what God says or is it who he is? Well, it's both in some senses. And out of who he saw when he created man, he said, very good. So, I don't believe that God, matter of fact, you can't find any place in Scripture that says opposite of that. There's no place that God revoked that declaration of very good and said no good. There is that one Scripture that says, uh, none are good, no, not one. And I think that they use that one. And that all have fallen short. And, uh, you know, yeah. again, perichoresis and the realities that go back to the origin and don't just look at things. It's an isolated instance right now. Uh, Jesus even said that. Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. But that doesn't really let us escape <laughs> because the scripture also says, be ye holy because God is holy. You know, so created value. Dan Muller talks about that, that God's never lost sight of our created value. And is our created value more intrinsic to who we are or less than our fallen value? Or what is our fallen value? Well, our fallen value is probably the same to the Father. So you have a dad and he's got two kids. And one of those kids stays around and does everything his father wants. The other kid goes off and takes his inheritance and pours around and blows it. What's the father's view of the value of those two boys? Well, I think that value is determined by love. Is, is that right? I'd have to think about that. Uh, love certainly is something that trades in value. Uh, I think value... I think reality, period, and values a part of reality is determined by God, by how he sees people, how he sees things. I think so. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So this perichoresis gives us this idea, you know. Uh, anyway, yeah, that's good. That's good. Did, did Laurel and the kids escape or? Oh, okay. They got raptured. 
That'll, that'll teach us about value here in just a minute. Yeah, go, go ahead and break around out. Any other thoughts, guys? Is anybody struggling with this still? I mean, and I'm not expecting us to, to do the, you know, just hook, line, and sinker. That's not the issue. But let's wrestle through this thing, if you've got any, any thoughts. Now, I will give you a little bit of a precursor of a couple of things that I do want to talk about in light of this, because once you start thinking about paracresis this way and the space it creates in God, then there's some things to talk about, like what what does it mean to be in Christ, and when did that happen, and how do we how does that come out? Another thing has to be with uh, what is being shared in the gospel. What did Jesus come to share? Did he come to share an opportunity, or did he come to share the life that he has with the Father? And how different is that than what we normally think? Because most of us don't think that what I need to be saved into is, is uh, a full participation and expression in the very life that Jesus and the Father have shared forever. But that, I think, is what we're being offered in the gospel and what we're offering in the gospel. So. I think it, it would be helpful, though. Those, a lot of those common scriptures, filthy rags is one of them, mm-hmm. falling short of the glory of God. All of those things. I, I do think we need to, to look at absolutely what absolutely. they mean or don't mean. Yeah. And see, here's the deal. So remember what, what uh, Bart said, that when we perichoresis is necessary to look at the three in oneness, to look at the original essence of God, and to look at the original relationships. So, for instance, the idea of, uh, you can go on up, the, the original idea of uh, uh, sin and fall short of the glory of God. Perichoresis the room that there is in perichoresis, not to slack off, the room there is to grow and to be real. Perichoresis will be a lens that will help us change the way we think about that scripture. And again, it's the dialectic. There's a lot of people that have opinions about that scripture that it's really black and white. Nobody I've ever heard preach on that in recent times actually just makes it say what it literally says that you have a target out there and you're trying to shoot it and the arrow doesn't get there. It doesn't mean the arrow deserves to be beaten. It doesn't mean the arrow is wicked. It means that it didn't make it to the target because of sin. We'll have to look at it. Yes. What is the next verse? There you go. That's a good point, Jan. All right. Thank you, guys. Praise God. Father, uh, even as we worship, actually, I guess what I'm asking is I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to say amen to the parts of these that you can endorse, the parts of these conversations and thoughts. Say amen. Cry out in our heart, Abba, to the Father, who is a part, the, the source of this paracritic relationship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Laurel.